I'm Peter. And I'm Felice. Welcome to our travel podcast. We're specialist travel writers and we've spent half a lifetime exploring every corner of the world. So we want to share with you some of our extraordinary experiences and the amazing people we've met along the way. This week we're in Jersey in the Channel Islands, best known for its beautiful sandy beaches, low taxes and delicious new potatoes, as well as being the only part of Britain that Hitler managed to occupy during World War II. Now, Jersey is the largest of these Channel Islands. It lies some 87 miles south of the English coastline, but only 14 from France. However, while English-speaking Jersey is part of the British Isles, it's not part of the United Kingdom and has never been part of the European Union. The island's self-governing, and it only relies on Westminster and the British Parliament for its defence. Not that it had much success with that in the dark days of the 1940s when the Germans invaded the islands. Faced with the impossibility of defending Jersey and the other islands, Churchill and the British War Cabinet in 1940 voted to leave the islanders to fend for themselves. Nazi troops turned the island into a fortress studded with gun emplacements to defend nearby St. Malo and the French coast. It was important for Hitler's Atlantic War, 1,670 miles of coastal defences that stretched all the way along the boundary of mainland Europe, from Scandinavia to the Spanish frontier. It was designed to resist any Allied invasion. So what happened to the islanders during the war years under Nazi occupation? We went along to Jersey's capital, St. Helier, to find out. Our guide, Nikki, filled us in as she gave us a lightning tour of some of the crumbling coastal defences linked by a network of underground passages and even an underground German hospital. So now we've got a view right the way across St. Oban's Bay to Elizabeth Castle. I think the interesting thing of a lot of the things in the island is you've got layers of history. So Elizabeth Castle, you've got a little chapel on it, which is from about the, the 10th century. There used to be a monastery. It's a Elizabethan castle. Then you've got Georgian things in it. And then you've got German occupation things on the top of it. So you get these layers of history within the buildings. So how large is the island? It's nine miles by five and it's got 106,000 people living here now. When I came to the island 40 years ago, there was 82,000 so it's grown quite considerably, really. And during the occupation, were there lots and lots of Germans here? Before the occupation, there was about 50,000 people. The war had started in 1939, and just before the Germans occupied, quite a number of people evacuated off the island. When did the Germans actually arrive here? So they arrived on the 1st of July, 1940. They'd bombed fairly close to this area. They did come on an air raid. Basically, the island was demilitarized. But the Germans didn't realise this, but the Germans thought it was. And there were potato lorries along here. They thought they were very military lorries. And in the end, they bombed this sort of area. But 10, 10 people, I think it was, who died. Do you know how many German troops there were on the island? There were about 40,000 local people and then about 12,000 troops. I mean, it, it did change during the war. But then also there was another possibly up to 8,000 or maybe more workers who were brought over to build the bunkers and build the seawalls and build all of those sort of things. So did the Germans come in quite aggressively, or was it quite quiet to start with? It was very quiet, really. I mean, they literally landed at the airport. They'd, they'd drop notes to say that we had to surrender. And people had to put out white things on their roofs. I mean, there's stories of people putting their vests and pants up on the roof, white sort of things, so just so that they could show that they surrendered. And then the next day, after all these white things were sort of hung out, 
they literally landed at the airport and arrived. And it's a big propaganda thing for them because you know, to, there's some classic photos of German soldiers next to Woolworths and an English policeman or, you know, Jersey policeman. So this is the Omaru Hotel. This was the brothel during the occupation. I mean, a very sad thing that a lot of prostitutes were brought over from France and then they were going back on a boat and the boat actually sunk. There was quite a tragic event, really, yeah. So, yeah, this was this was where the lorries were. It's now called Liberation Square, actually. This is here. And there's a there's a statue in the middle showing the liberation. So when, when the island was liberated, this was an area of great celebration. But the building that we're passing is actually the old abattoir and market sort of area. And so the potato lorries were all lined up along here. And that was the area that was bombed. After the first few weeks, did it get a bit tougher for the islanders? Yes, to begin with. I mean, basically, the, the bailiff of Jersey, Alexander Coutanche, he did remain in control of local affairs. I mean, I think he did a very good job of being a mediator between the German occupiers and the local people. So, But gradually, as the war came on, there were more and more regulations put in to begin with there was still lots of stuff in the shops there was still food and everything here there wasn't any major shortages of things and so in fact the Germans apparently when they arrived they sort of went on a bit of a spending spree in the shops because they hadn't had that sort of stuff at home but yeah it as as time went on it got harder and harder really yeah where we're heading to is the headland, which you can see off to the left there, and that's called Noirmont. And there was a very large strong point on that area. So there would have been a lot of Aussie soldiers. Well, there was actually the Navy who were there, and they would have been garrisons up there. But the officers tended to be in the hotels and sort of lodging houses, and some people had to take in German soldiers and things. Although the bunkers were built to be able to house people, often they weren't actually living in them. But you'll see that there's just an enormous amount of concrete was poured into the island. And that was really all from about 1941 to about 43. It was only really two years of, of building. And it's incredible how much they did in that small amount of time when you look at how long buildings take to be built now. <laughs> and the Germans deported quite a lot of people from the island. Yes, I think it was in 1942. Anybody who had English ancestry, they were deported to southern Germany. And there was about, I think it was about 1,200 evacuated, well, not evacuated, they were taken off the island. It was a camp. They lived fairly, you know, normal life, well, as normal as it could be. I mean, they were housed in, you know, very large, large castle type place, I think it was. And they were interned, essentially. Yes, that's right, yeah. And the Jews on the island, were there many Jews? Well, there were some Jews. I mean, all the Jewish shops were closed. They were part of that sort of internment thing. They weren't sent away to concentration camps from here. There was two different sorts of things happening, really. There was the internment, but also some people were sent to prison for having a, a um, radio, perhaps, or doing something against the Germans during the occupation. There's one story about Louisa Gould, who was a really interesting lady. She lived out in St. Wands and she actually protected a slave worker for a long time. And, you know, he became part of the family, really. I mean, the classic 
saying that she had was I wanted to look after another mother's son because her son had died in the war and she wanted to, to look after this person. And But she got informed on and ended up in prison here. And then she got sent to Ravensbrook and she died in Ravensbrook. But her brother also went and he actually was one of the very, very few people who came back from Belsen. He was actually, he was there. So yeah, that's, you know, and there's quite a number of those sorts of stories of people who were sent away. So there were, I mean, there's a memorial down in the, near the Maritime Museum for all the people who were sent to concentration camps. I think there's about 20 odd names on it. And presumably in terms of survival, food in particular, conditions got more and more difficult as the war went on. Yeah, the the hardest thing was basically once after D-Day was when it became much harder. The supply lines for the Germans and the island were cut because obviously we've got France on two sides of us and everything was being brought in from France, which was fine. Once France was liberated, then there was no food coming in. And so that was a really, really hard time, not just for the Jersey people. It was also hard for the, the German troops as well. You know, there was lots of talk of eating you know, limpet stew and making coffee out of round acorns. And, you know, there's lots of stories like that. Slave workers that you mentioned, were they taken from concentration camps in Poland and places like that? Well, I'm not sure where they They came in from Poland, from Ukraine. There was Russian. I mean, it's interesting. There was a, a whole probably about up to sort of 11,000 or more workers were brought in. Some were slaves, so that was the Russian, and, and the Germans would call them the Undermachen, this real bottom of the, uh, in terms of, of people. But then there were also Spanish people were brought in. There were some Belgians. So there were some forced laborers. There were some paid laborers. And Jersey people also, some Jersey people did end up working on the building of all the different bunkers. The Russians, apparently, and the Polish were the ones who were treated the worst, really. And, you know, people talk about how they'd see them being taken to work and they'd try and throw them a turnip or something or throw them something to eat and and try to help them a little bit. So we're now coming onto the headland, which is called Noamo. It's like a sort of almost like a peninsula sticking out. And this is where the German Navy were. You'll see there's, I don't know how many bunkers there are here, but a massive number of bunkers. Um, there's a big, what they called the MP towers, which were range finding towers and all, all concentrated onto this one thing. And they almost seem a bit like being on a boat, really. From the moment when the Germans first landed, there was actually no contact with England at all until liberation. No, that's right. I mean, they had Red Cross letters would come in. Some commandos did land at a place called Egypt on the north coast just to see what was happening in the island, but that didn't really work very well. I mean, it, there, were, there was a little bit more of that going on in Guernsey because obviously Guernsey is that much closer to Britain. And so they did have a few more people coming to try to find out what was happening in the islands. But they were really basically left left to their own devices. So was there a feeling amongst the islanders that they'd been abandoned by Britain? Yeah, I think so, definitely. Yeah, no, it was, it was taken fairly badly, really, I think, by quite a lot of people, yeah. We're on a very remote headland here, and there's all kinds of old concrete bunkers and lookouts. It must have been a very bleak sight in 1914. 
It otherwise looks a bit like Cornwall, actually. Land's End. We move on to the little village of St. Brillard, which is just along the coast from St. Helier. This was called the St. Brillard's Bay Hotel, but during the occupation, this is where the officers stayed, and it was almost like a recuperation home so people could come, were brought in here from elsewhere. And, you know, they could they could actually stay. It was like a, a place to recuperate, really. From the on, the, on the seaside? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So in the house just behind us here, and that's where Claude Cahoon and Marcel Moore lived, and they were a fascinating pair. They were French artists. Their proper names were Lucy Schwab and Suzanne Malherbe, and they came over in about 1936 to live on the island. They were a couple, but they were also stepsisters, so at the time it was acceptable that they were living together in this house here. And they were surrealist artists. Claude Cahoon was a photographer who developed lots of techniques of superimposing pictures on top of each other and, and all sorts of different things. And, and there's an amazing collection of her photos in the Jersey Museum. But during the occupation, they became resistance fighters in a way. But it was all very passive resistance. So they had a radio and they used to listen to it. They spoke German, so they were able to translate what was happening in the war into German, and they were typed it up onto little notes, which they put into Germans' pockets and and to try to destabilize things, really, to tell the Germans what was happening in the war actually happening rather than the propaganda which they were hearing. And so this went on for a long time. And in the German cemetery, which was in in the church here, they used to sort of put black crosses on the German graves and a number of small little acts of resistance, really. So they were a fascinating pair. And all the time with their radio set, they were living, what, just 10 metres from the German officer's hotel. Absolutely, yes. No, I mean, they were living very dangerously, but they looked like two very ordinary middle-aged women, and they really, they were not that at all. They were really quite an an amazing couple. So what happened to the pair of them? Well, they did eventually get caught um, having a radio, and they, they discovered that they'd written all these notes and things, and so they ended up in the local prison. They were given the death sentence, actually, Claude Cahoon. She's alleged to have said she got a death sentence for all the notes and things and she got a a prison sentence for the holding the radio and I think she said, you know, which am I going to get first? The story is, is that they did try to commit suicide in prison. Did the Germans shoot any Jersey people? I think there was one or two executions but because people couldn't resist in a way because if they did resist there'd be such reprisals in this area around Lemoy, where we are now, there was um, the forced labourers were, were in a camp here. And there's a great story about a Belgian worker. He was working on the walls and things. And he met this young girl from, from Lemoy, the local girl. And he got sent back to Germany. And the story is, is that he actually ended up escaping back into the island to be with this girl. So he was the only person to actually escape into the island during the occupation. He's only fairly recently died. He was the grandfather of one of my daughter's friends. Yeah, apparently he went down to one of the bunkers on an open day and they said, oh, that'll be five pounds or whatever to come in. And he said, well, I'm not paying because I helped build it. <laughs> OK, so we're now down on the headland of Corbiere. You can see the lighthouse just off to the left there. And we've also got another a second one of these 
control towers, which you can see. This one's quite interesting because it's now, it used to be Jersey Radio, so the Coast Guard used to be from here, which is why you've got the glass roof on it. But now it's actually somewhere which you can rent to stay in. It's Jersey Heritage rented out to stay in, and it's an amazing amazing place it's got three double bedrooms and it's got a kitchen and then the lounge is the top when which just get amazing 360 degrees from so i think one of the amazing things you'll notice that every single headland has got concrete on it bunkers and you've got the sea walls and the thing that always i find really interesting is just the thought that every single bag of cement which they used had to be brought into the island because there's no local cement there's been a calculation done that it was over a million bags of cement were had to be brought in. So apparently 250,000 tonnes of cement had to be brought in to the island from Germany. And it was 40 million man-hours they calculated in the building of, the, of all the defences. Remarkable, isn't it? No, I mean, it is. It, it, you know, and the fact that it was done in such a short period of time because they didn't really start doing the building until slightly into the war. You know, they'd been here about a year or so before they started. And so it's a huge, huge task. And often having to build through through granite, so incredibly hard labour that, that was happening here. Where did the slave labourers live? They there were various camps around the island where they were they were lived and often they they worked all week but then they sometimes had Sundays off. But then on the Sundays when they didn't work, they weren't fed. So they would then go scavenging around trying to find food and things. So I think it was a really, it was really tough. I mean, there were different types of labourers. You know, it wasn't all slave labour. It was also some forced, some paid labour, some Jersey people. The slave labourers, were they fed properly? Because the slave labourers in Poland and places like that weren't fed. They were starved at the same time. Yeah, I think pretty much the same here. I think they would have had the bare minimum of food to keep them able to work, really. Alderney was in a worse position than the island. I mean, Alderney pretty much had something similar to a concentration camp on it. It was evacuated totally. It's got a fairly bleak history, really, during the occupation. And certainly after D-Day, uh, the people who suffered most were the slave labourers, weren't they? Yes, yeah. But by that time, most of that, that the building had stopped then and, and they went and you know, after D-Day, it was it was the locals and the German soldiers, and in fact they were saved pretty much by something called the Vega, which was a a boat which came in a Red Cross ship, which brought Red Cross parcels in, and you know that was just after Christmas 1944 that that happened, and people say that that was what saved them really. As we come along this section here, this is St. Juan's Bay. Um, the whole of the bay has got tank defence sort of walls all the way along. And you'll notice in the sand dunes and things, there's lots and lots of, of bunkers sort of hidden away along, along the whole stretch of this coast. Because this is the west coast. And obviously this was the first port of call. If there, an attack came, people believed that this would be where it was. You can see out in the bay one of the Jersey Round Towers, which were the earlier sort of 1780s. They were all built against the French. So, Nicky, just explain what Jersey's relationship is with the United Kingdom. We're what's called a crown dependency. So what that means is we have allegiance to the, well, the king now, but we don't have allegiance to the government. Royalty to the, to the Channel Islanders, the queen was our duke, the king is now our duke. 
because we were part of Normandy when William the Conqueror conquered Britain. So we, we were on the winning side at that point, and there were Jerseymans fighting alongside William the Conqueror. And he was our duke. And it, when the French lost us, they're basically in the, with King John, he lost a lot of his French land. And Jersey almost had an option to become part of France or to stay with Britain. The 13th century, I guess. Yes, yeah. 1204 was the, the date, if you like, when we pledged our allegiance, really, to Britain. If people want to know more about World War II in Jersey, is there somewhere they can look online? Yes, well, there's a number of places. I mean, the Channel Island Occupation Society have got a website and they've got quite a lot of information. The Jersey War Tunnels, which is a big displays about the the war, that again has a good good website. There's also a, a place called Jeripedia, which is a website for lo- local history. And so, again, that's that's a really good place to find out. How do you spell Jeripedia? J-E-R-R-I-P-E-D-I-A. And if other people want to go with a knowledgeable guide like you, how do they book? Okay, well, I'm I'm involved with Jersey Uncovered. We're a group of six guides, so you can find us easily on online, jerseyuncovered.com. There are other places, people who do bunker tours. So there's a number of them. If, if you were just to search occupation Jersey tours, you'll find a number of things. To put some meat on the bones of the occupation, we met up with Islander Roger Lewis, an old school friend of mine whose father was a doctor in Jersey throughout the war years. Now, as a teenager, I well remember Dr John Lewis recounting fascinating tales of his practice during the occupation, moving around the island on an ancient bicycle to treat his patients. He had almost no drugs, but great medical skills and a wicked sense of humour that kept him going through thick and thin. Now, sadly, John is no longer with us, but his book records his solitary existence throughout the occupation. So, Roger, your, your father was a, a doctor on Jersey in the late 1930s, and then it looked like the Germans were going to invade, and your, your mother was heavily pregnant, your eldest brother. Correct, yeah. The Germans were about to arrive, your mother was about to give birth, and he thought he should probably leave and go back to Wales and look after your mother, quite rightly, while their, their first son was born. Correct. Actually, what prompted it? was at one time they decided to stay in the island and throw in their lot with the islanders. And then the rumours started coming through that the, the Germans were taking newborn babies back to Germany. And my mother was going to be giving birth to a newborn baby over here. And that's what prompted them to go back to the UK. And they got one of the last planes back. And they got one of the last planes back. And then to Cardiff. But then what happened? My father discovered that his partner had got cold feet and had left the island. So there was no one looking after the practice. And he knew he had a, a, at least a dozen women who he was promised to deliver their babies. And he thought he'd better come back here and see if they can sort that out. I mean, while your brother hadn't yet been born. He hadn't yet been born. He came back on the boat. When we were being brought up, we'd always thought that my father got trapped here, came back and the Germans walked in and that was it. It was only after my mother had died and he died that we had some lady who came up for dinner and she said, well, you know, your father wasn't actually. He opted to stay in Jersey because the bailiff had him in with his great friend was a chap called Graham Bentliff. And he had my father, Graham Bentliff, and he said, look, you please stay. You've got to stay. If Jersey is to survive the occupation, we must have a young doctor. There are far too many old doctors here. And uh, 
So she said, your father, your father actually opted to stay. But we never knew that when we were being brought up. It's very difficult to say to your wife, um, I've decided not to come back to you after all. <laughs> Despite the fact you're about to give birth. To yeah, absolutely. But it was a brave thing to do. So many people left Jersey and he actually came back. And then the, the Germans came in and all communication with Britain, with Wales, was cut. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. So I think I'm right in saying it was a long time before he even knew that uh, your brother had been born. It was uh, nine months or something. He tried to get the BBC to play something, a sort of certain song that my parents used to dance to before the war. And if they play that, he would know that the baby was was all right and being born. But the BBC said, no, that could be a secret message for the Germans. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how, careful, how careful can you be? <laughs> Clearly, it was a very painful period of his life. And some 40 years went by before he could bring himself to write it all down in the 1980s. How did he remember everything? Did he keep a diary? He, he, he kept it in his, in his medical day book, apparently. Oh. He had a very good memory, actually. Mm. And uh, he never let the truth get in the way of making up a good story either. <laughs> he had a wonderful story about buying wine on the eve of the invasion. I think he went into his local wine merchant and did a bit of a deal, didn't he? Yes, yes. Nearly all the wine had gone except for the the, the best, you know, the, the old Briands. Yeah. And uh, he said, well, I'll take the lot. And they, they started, you know, well, that's 21 shillings and things. He said... <laughs> He said, well, the Germans will give you nothing except a kick up the backside for it. I'll, I'll give you five bob a bottle. And that's what, that's what he got it for. But that's, even that's quite expensive. Yes, indeed, yeah. And then he, he took up all the floorboards and uh, hid, and the hid them uh, under the floorboards. Yeah. I remember him telling a story, which is not in the book, actually, about making all this homemade hooch out of potatoes, I think, when the wine finally ran out. And uh, when they had a liberation party and the war, he had all these patients there and he, Woke up in the morning and there were cars sort of slid across the road. <laughs> possible election. People weren't used to <laughs> drinking, so. <laughs> <laughs> he said to himself, Oh my goodness, I've kept them alive for five years and now I've killed them. <laughs> What's your favourite story about the war? I think it's probably to do with the animals and the cow. Or you couldn't have a single cow in with under the German rules, but which my father had one and he lent it to a, a farmer so that he could have a baby calf and then so they had this baby calf at home and uh, you had to hand over the calves to the Germans. You had to yeah at a certain age. So my father went with a great friend of his they went up and stole the calf. His own calf. His own calf. They then distributed veal to all their friends. His farm hand rang him and said you won't believe this doctor but the you know the calf's been stolen. He said don't be stupid pain. (laughs) (laughs) On a more serious note, by the end of the war, the island was starving, both the islanders and the Germans. Is that right? Totally. The only thing which saved them was Red Cross parcels. I think that wasn't until uh, Christmas 1944. So much later, all the places like Coldis were getting Red Cross parcels much earlier. But I'm very grateful to what this Red Cross did. But otherwise, they, they were starving badly. My father was very resourceful, and my father would have been deported. But because he was in essential employment as head of the maternity hospital... And he, he would have got a, a basic petrol ration, I suppose. He cycled virtually everywhere in the end. 
The book is called A Doctor's Occupation by John Lewis, and it's available from Amazon and from Channel Island bookshops. Stay with us here in the Channel Islands for next week's episode of Action Packed Travel. We'll be taking a detailed look at Jersey's premier hotel, the magnificent Longville Manor. It's one of less than a handful of five stars in the British Isles, but still in private hands and family run. That's all for now. If you've enjoyed the show, please visit our website, actionpacktravel.com, or you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or any of the many podcast platforms. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd love you to sign up for our regular emails too at peter at actionpacktravel.com. Until next week, stay safe. And I am you, you and me. It's just a crazy storm.